Part 2, Chapters 9 and 10 of How I Filmed the War by Geoffrey H. Malins. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 9, 14,000 Feet Above the German Lines I feel confident I can manage it, and that the result will be both instructive and unique, and provided the weather is clear and I get as small a dose of Bosch as possible, there is no reason why it shouldn't be successful. Of course, I am quite aware of the atmospheric difficulties. The fact that it is so thick and misty is entirely due to the heavy body of moisture in the ground, but if I start off early in the morning, I may just escape it. This conversation took place in the office of a certain British aerodrome in France between the flight commander and myself. We had been going into the pros and cons of an aerial expedition over the German lines. I was anxious to film the whole line from an aeroplane. Well, said he, what about the height? I think I had better call in the captain. And pressing a bell, an orderly quickly appeared and was sent off to inform the captain that his presence was required. I say, said the flight commander, this is Malins, the war office kinematographer. He then explained my mission and requirements. Now, he said, after all preliminaries had been discussed, the question is about the height. What is a tolerably safe height over Bosch? About 8,000 feet, I should say, though of course if we go well over his lines it will be necessary to rise higher. There are too many archibalds about to dodge any lower. Well, I replied, I'll start taking my scenes when we arrive at the coastline. We can then follow it along and turn off inland towards Ypres. I should very much like to film that place from above, then follow down the lines, passing over Saint-Eloi, Plogstert, Armentier, Neuve-Chapelle, Richebourg, Festubert, Givenchy, Lowe's, Hohenzollern Redoubt, and on to Arras. I am, of course, entirely in your hands. I do not want to jeopardize the trip, nor wish you to run any unnecessary risks, you understand, but I should like to get as low as possible, and so obtain more detail. It will be the first kinematograph film ever taken of the Western Front. Well, said the flight commander, rising, you have full permission. You can have the use of a BE-2C machine, with Captain Blank. Do what you like, but take care. Don't be rash. Good luck to you. I shall be as anxious as you to see the result. In the captain's company I left the office, and together we went round to make arrangements regarding the means of fixing my camera. The machine was the usual type of passenger-carrying arrow, numbered BE-2C, a very stable and reliable machine, but according to the captain not very fast. Speed in this case was not an absolute necessity unless a Fokker favoured us with his attentions. I went aboard to find the best means of fixing and operating my camera. I decided to use my debris, not the aeroscope. The latter had jammed a day or two previous, and I had not had an opportunity of repairing it. The observer's seat was in the front, and just above, on the main struts, was a cross-tube of metal. On each end was an upright socket for the purpose of dropping into it a Lewis gun. The pilot also had the same in front of him. I suggested that a metal fixing which would fit the socket and a tilting arrangement so that it would be possible to raise or lower the camera to any angle would suit admirably, and on the other side, in case of attack, a Lewis gun could be fitted. It's well to be prepared for emergencies, said the captain. It's quite possible we shall be attacked. Well, I said, I will have a good shot at him if he does turn up, and who knows, I may be able to get a picture of the Hun machine falling. By Jove! What a thrill it would provide!
instructions were given to the excellent mechanics employed in the rfc and within an hour or so the metal tilting top was made and fixed on the plane you will have to wrap up well said the captain it's jolly cold up there it looks rather misty and that will make it all the worse now then all aboard up i scrambled or rather wriggled between a network of wire stays and taking my seat the camera was handed to me i fastened it on one side of the gun mounting and fixed a lewis gun on the other making sure i had spare boxes of film ready and spare drums of ammunition i then fastened the broad web belt round my waist and fixed on my goggles i was ready for the ascent my companion was in his seat and the machine was wheeled into position for starting the mechanics were turning the propeller round to suck the gas into the many cylinders to facilitate easier starting already shouted the captain right away contact let her go and with a jerk the motor started the whirl of the huge blades developed into a deafening roar the machine vibrated horribly i clung to my camera holding it tight to the socket i knew that once in the air the shake would be reduced to a minimum faster and faster whirled the propeller as the captain opened the throttle how sweet and perfect was the hum of the giant motor not the slightest sound of a misfire being an ardent motorist i could tell that the engine was in perfect tune the captain leaned over and shouted to me through the roar to fasten the telephone receiver against my ear under my leather cap that said he pointing to a mouthpiece attached to a small rubber tube is the transmitter if you want to give me any instructions shout into that i shall hear you all fit he asked i nodded my head he took his seat and opened the throttle the engine leapt into new life the roar was deafening the whirring blades flung the air back into my face cutting it as if with a whip he dropped his arm the men drew away the chocks from the wheels and amid shouts of good luck from the officers present the machine sprang forward like a greyhound bounding over the grass until at last it rose like a gigantic bird into the air the earth gradually drew away higher and higher we rose and began to circle round and round to gain height we will get up to three thousand feet before we strike towards the coast he shouted through the telephone the vibration now we were in the air was barely perceptible at any rate it was not sufficient to affect the taking of my scenes in case any moisture collected on my lens i had brought a soft silk pad to wipe it with occasionally higher still higher we rose what's the height now i asked very nearly three thousand feet he said we are now going towards the coast that's dunkirk over there i peered ahead the port with its shipping was clearly discernible over the sea hung a dense mist looking for all the world like a snowfield here and there in clear patches the sun gleamed upon the water throwing back its dazzling reflections as soon as we reached the coastline i shouted proceed well along this side so that i can obtain an oblique view it looks much better than directly above the object what's our speed sixty miles he said i shall keep it up until we reach the german lines he turned sharp to the right we are now following the coastline towards ostend how beautiful the sand dunes looked from above the heavy billows of sea mist gave it a somewhat mystic appearance how cold it was i huddled down close into my seat my head only above the fuselage keeping my eye upon the wonderful panorama unfolding itself out beneath me i glanced at my camera and tested the socket 
Yes, it was quite firm. We are nearing the lines now, my companion shouted. Can you see them on your right? That's the Belgium area. Our section, as you know, begins just before Ypres. Will this height suit you? Shall I follow the trenches directly overhead or a little to one side? Keep this side. I'll begin taking now. Kneeling up in my seat, I directed my camera downwards and started filming our lines and the German position stretching away in the distance. We were nearing Ypres, that shell-battered city of Flanders. White balls of smoke here and there were bursting among the ruins, showing that the Huns were still shelling it. What a frightful state the earth was in. For miles and miles around it had the appearance of a sieve, with hundreds of thousands of shell-holes, and like a beautiful green ribbon winding away as far as the eye could see, was that wonderful yet terrible strip of ground between the lines, known as no man's land. We were now running into a bank of white fleecy clouds which enveloped us in its folds, blotting the whole earth from view. I held my handkerchief over the lens of the camera to keep the moisture from settling upon it. After a time several breaks appeared in the clouds beneath, and the earth looked wonderful. It seemed miles, many miles away. Rivers looked like silver streaks, and houses mere specks upon the landscape. Here and there a puff of white smoke told of a bursting shell. But for that occasional, somewhat unpleasant reminder, I might have been thousands of miles away from the greatest war in history. Who could imagine anything more wonderful, more fantastic? I had dreamed of such things, I had read of them. I even remembered having read, years ago, some of the wonderful stories in Grimm's fairy tales. To my childish mind they seemed very wonderful indeed. There were fairies, goblins, mysterious figures, castles which floated in the air, wonderful lands which shifted in a night at the touch of a magic wand or the sound of a magic word, things which fired my youthful imagination and set me longing to share in their adventures. But never in my wildest dreams did I think I should live to do the same thing, to go where I listed, to fly like a bird high above the clouds. It was like an adventure in fairyland to take this weird and wonderful creation of men called an aeroplane through the home of the skylark. Boom! Boom! I was suddenly brought back to, no, not to earth, but to things more material. Looking down, I could discern several balls of smoke, which I immediately recognized as shrapnel shells, or archibalds, that had been fired at us by the Germans. They were well below. I looked round at the captain. He was smiling through his goggles, and humorously jerked his thumb in the direction of the bursting archies. "'Too high, eh?' I shouted. But I had forgotten that in the fearful hum of the rushing air and whirling motors my voice would not carry. It was literally cut off as it left my lips. I picked up the phone and shouted through it. "'Yes, they are pretty safe where they are,' he said dryly. Then a few more burst underneath us. By this time we were well out of the cloud bank. The atmosphere was much clearer. I knelt up again on my seat and began to expose, and continued turning the handle while we passed over saint Eloise and Hill 60. On certain sections I could see that a considerable strafe was going on. Fritz seemed to be having a very trying time. Near Messines, my film suddenly ran out. I had to reload. This was anything but an easy operation. I unscrewed my camera from the gun socket, and in doing so had a near escape from doing a head-dive to earth. Like an idiot, I had unfastened my waist-strap, 
and in reaching over the fuselage my camera nearly overbalanced, the aeroplane contributing to this result by making a sudden dive in order to avoid an archibald. For a second or two I had clear visions of flying through space on wings other than those of an aeroplane, but fortunately I had the steel crossbar to cling to, and this saved me. Getting back to my seat, I asked the pilot to circle round the spot for a few minutes. While changing my spool, I settled down in the bottom of the car and reloaded my camera, 8,000 feet above the earth. This operation occupied about 10 minutes, and when I had finished, I gingerly raised myself on the seat and refixed the camera in its socket. Right away, I shouted. Is it possible to go any lower? It's very risky, he said, but if you like, I will try. Hold tight. It's a dive. I held tight. The nose of the machine tilted forward until it seemed as if it was absolutely standing on end. The earth rushed up to meet us. For the moment it seemed as if the aeroplane was out of control, but with a graceful glide which brought us level we continued our journey at a height of three thousand feet. Get what you want quickly, he shouted. We can't stay here long. I began to expose again. By now we were over line after line of trenches. At times we were well over the Bosch lines. I continued to film the scenes. First came Plugstert, Fromel, and Aubert Ridge. Then we crossed to Neuve-Chapelle, Festubert, La Bassée, and Los. Town after town, village after village were passed over, all of them in ruins. From above the trenches, like a splash of white chalk dropped into the middle of a patch of brown earth, the long, winding trenches cut out of the chalk twisted and wound along valley and dale like a serpent. Looking down upon it all, it seemed so very insignificant. Man, what was he? His works looked so small that it seemed one could, with a sweep of the foot, crush him out of existence. How small he was, yet how great! How powerful, yet how weak! We were now over La Bassée. "'We shall have to rise,' shouted my captain. "'Look up there!' I looked up, and thousands of feet above us was a small speck. "'Bosch plane,' said he. Hold tight, and I did. Chapter 10 Filming the Earth from the Clouds Is that gun ready? asked my companion, twisting round in his seat. I nodded. Righto, I'm going to get up higher. We are absolutely lost down here. I fixed on a drum of cartridges, and with a butt in my hand was ready for any emergency. Higher and higher we rose. The mist was becoming more and more dense. Photographing was impossible. The cold seemed to chill one's bones. I could tell by the increasing vibration we were going all out in order to get above the enemy machine, which seemed to be drawing closer and closer. I looked at the pilot. He had his eyes fixed upon the bush. What are we now? Eight thousand, he said. That chap must be at least thirteen thousand up. Do you notice whether he is coming nearer? I told him it seemed to me as if he was doing so. Up and up we went. Colder and colder it grew. My face was frozen. To breathe I had to turn my head sideways to avoid the direct rush of air from the whirling propeller. I could just discern the ground through the mist. I looked around for the Bosch. He seemed further away. I shouted to the pilot. He looked round. I'm going to chase it, he said. And away he went. But the faster we moved, the faster went the other machine. At last we discovered the reason. In fact, I believe we both discovered it at precisely the same moment. The plane was one of our own. I looked at the captain. He smiled at me, 
and I'm positive he felt disappointed at the discovery. What's the height? I inquired. About 13,000 feet, he said. Shall we go higher? We may get above the mist. Try a little more, I replied. But I don't think it will be possible to film any more scenes today. The fog is much too heavy. The whole machine was wet with moisture. It seemed as if we should never rise above it. I had never before known it so thick. My companion asked if we should return. With reluctance I agreed. Then, turning round to face to the sun, we rushed away. The mist did not seem to change. Mile after mile we encountered the same impenetrable blanket of clammy moisture. I was huddling as tight as possible to the bottom of the seat, taking advantage of the least bit of cover from the biting, rushing swirl of icy cold air. Mile after mile, it seemed hours up there in the solitude. I watched the regular dancing up and down of the valves on top of the engine. I was thinking of a tune that would fit to the regular beat of the tappets. I shouted through the phone. No answer. He must be too cold to speak, I thought. For myself, I did not know whether I had jaws or not. The lashing, biting wind did not affect my face now. I could feel nothing. Once I tried to pinch my cheek. It was lifeless. It might have been clay. My jaw was practically set stiff. I could only just articulate. I tried again to attract my companion's attention. Still no answer. I was wondering whether anything had happened to him when something did happen which very nearly petrified me. I felt a clutch on my shoulder. Quickly turning my head, I was horrified to see him standing on his seat and leaning over my shoulder. "'Get off the telephone tube, you idiot! You are sitting on it!' he shouted. "'We can't speak to one another.' "'Telephone be damned!' I managed to shout. "'Get back to your seat. Don't play monkey tricks up here!' If you can imagine yourself fourteen thousand feet above the earth, sitting in an aeroplane, and the pilot letting go all his controls as he stands on his feet, shouting in your ear, you will be able to realize, but only to a very slight extent, what my feelings were at this precise moment. He returned to his seat. He was smiling. I fumbled about underneath and found the tube. Putting it to my mouth, I asked him what he meant by it. "'That's all right, my dear chap,' he said. "'There's no need to get alarmed. The old bus will go along merrily on its own.' "'I'll believe all you say. In fact, I'll believe anything you like to tell me, but I'd much rather you sit in your seat and control the machine,' I replied. He chuckled apparently enjoying the joke to the full. But during the remainder of the journey I made sure I was not sitting on the speaking tube. The mist was gradually clearing now. The sun shone gloriously. The clouds a long way beneath us looked more substantial. Through the gaps in their fleecy whiteness the earth appeared. It seemed a long time since I had seen it. We were again coming to the edge of a cloud bank. The atmosphere beyond was exceedingly clear. We are nearly home, said my companion. Are you going to take any more scenes? Yes, I said. I suppose you'll spiral down? Right-ho! I'll take a film showing the earth revolving. It'll look very quaint on the screen. Here goes, then. We are going to dive down to about 6,000 feet, so hold on tight to your strap. The engines almost stopped. Suddenly we seemed to be falling earthwards, down, 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 we were diving as nearly perpendicular as it is possible to be. Sharp pains shot through my head. It was getting worse. The pain was horrible. The right side of my face and head seemed as if a hundred pinpoints were being driven into it. I clutched my face in agony. 
Then I realized the cause. Coming down from such a height at so terrific a speed, the different pressure of the atmosphere affected the blood pressure on the head. Suddenly the downward rush was stopped. The plane was brought to an even keel. I'm going to spiral now, said the pilot. Ready? Right away, I said, and knelt again in my seat. The plane suddenly seemed to swerve. Then it slanted at a most terrifying angle and began to descend rapidly towards the earth in a spiral form. I filmed the scene on the journey. To say the earth looked extraordinary would be putting it very mildly. The ground below seemed to rush up and mix with the clouds. First the earth seemed to be over one's head, then the clouds. I am sure the most ardent futurist artist would find it utterly impossible to do justice to such a scene. Round and round we went, now one side, now the other. How I held to my camera handle, goodness only knows. Half the time, I am sure, I turned it mechanically. Suddenly we came to an even keel. The earth seemed within jumping distance. The nose dipped again, the propeller whirled. Within a few seconds we were bounding along on the grassy space of the aerodrome, and finally, coming to rest, we were surrounded by the mechanics, who quickly brought the machine to a standstill. By the way, I said to the pilot as we went off to tea, how long were we up there altogether? Two hours, he replied. Two hours? Great Scott! It seemed days. End of Part 2 Chapters 9 and 10